from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm the station's new reporter, Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, a look at sagebrush restoration in Grand Teton National Park. That diversity of life, of plants, supports wildlife throughout the whole year. Plus, an interview with members of theater company Bread and Puppet, which is coming to the Center of the Arts on Tuesday, October 18th. It is operating on this universal level to get at very specific political issues of this moment. But first, protesters rallied at the Jackson Town Square last weekend in support of reproductive freedoms. While abortions are completely restricted in nearby states like Idaho, they're still legal in Wyoming, and activists want to keep it that way. We've got more on their message about the upcoming November election. As women's marches took off across the country on October 8th, about 100 people gathered on the Jackson Town Square to rally for abortion rights. The event came a month before the November election, and activists had a clear message. Vote for pro-choice candidates. Let's go to the polls and elect representatives who will stand for fairness and protect our most basic rights, who will make decisions based on what their constituents want rather than their own religious and political agendas. That's Dominique Lawn one of the four local women who organized the event. She and fellow organizers, Daniel Shapiro, Caitlin Shia, and Shelby Reed, think it's important to speak up now as abortion rights hang in legal limbo in Wyoming and as state judges consider a lawsuit blocking the state's abortion ban. With an injunction in place, abortions are still legal in Wyoming. Still, Jackson's Women's Health Center and Family Care Clinic is the only place currently providing abortions in the state. The clinic also serves patients from the eastern parts of Idaho, the state with some of the nation's most restrictive abortion bans. One of the speakers at the rally, Katie Noyes, is a doctor there and says she had just seen a patient who drove four hours from Haley, Idaho to get an abortion. It's not unusual for people to drive three plus hours from Riverton, sometimes Green River. Noyes encouraged attendees to vote, but also to share their personal experiences with abortion. One local, did just that. Grace Peck, an artist and a mother of two, first started sharing her story publicly on social media a year ago. She said that while it was scary to tell people like her dad and her brother, she received a staggering amount of support. Peck also felt all the more grateful for her access to abortions. I was allowed to be nothing but incredibly thankful to have been able to make that decision to have my two beautiful children who I would not trade for the entire world or any past experiences on my terms when the time was right for me. Local Democrats running for election this season were also invited to speak at the rally. They included Mike Yin, who's running for re-election in the Wyoming House's District 16. Make sure, make sure that for two years and for every year after that, that that candidate will vote pro-choice. Another Democratic speaker, Liz Storer, is running for House District 23, and she's trying to differentiate herself from her moderate Republican opponent, Paul Vogelheim. Both candidates say they're pro-choice, but 
Vogelheim says he'd support a popular vote for reproductive freedoms. Storer says she doesn't think people should need to vote on what she describes as a basic right. Do we vote on other protected rights? The right to equality? The right to due process? Should the freedom of religion be decided by a popular vote? Vogelheim didn't speak at the event, but he did attend. He says in an interview with KHOL that he'd prefer the people of Wyoming to have a say in abortion. As opposed to what I think is a, a growing right-wing faction in the uh, legislature. The rally in the left-leaning Teton County didn't seem any counter-protesters like previous abortion rallies have, but it did bring together locals across generations. I simply believe that people deserve bodily autonomy. It's pretty simple. I think I've been at this for 60 years. It never goes away. That was 25-year-old Yvonne Jimenez and 80-year-old Reed Dornan, who's running for the local school board. She stood next to a sign that said, For Our Grandkids. The circus is coming. On Tuesday, October 18th, the resident culture organizations in Jackson's Center for the Arts, including KHOL, are presenting theater company Bread and Puppet. KHOL's executive director, Emily Cohen, spoke with two members of the troupe, Paul Bedard and Andy Kolpitz, in advance of their upcoming show. First off, I am so excited to be speaking with you both today, and I'm also so excited for this performance titled the Apocalypse Defiant Circus. This event is both the first time that Bread and Puppet will be performing in Wyoming, and it is also the first collaboration of its kind between all the resident cultural organizations here at the Center for the Arts. So for those that aren't familiar with Bread and Puppet, how would you describe this show? What is the audience going to experience? It's a circus, so you're going to see a lot of circus tropes that are reinterpreted for puppets. We always open with a flag run. So like the entire cast is running around with flags. A clown introduces the show. And then we see a bunch of short acts. Some of them have stilts. Others have tigers. Some of the puppets are larger than life, like 20 feet tall. And some of the puppets are, uh, you know, handheld. So the audience is really going to see a, a great variety of puppetry styles and get to listen to a great brass band the whole while they do. Is this show typical of Bread and Puppet? So every year, Bread and Puppet will make a new circus. Um, it's one of one of kind of the, the genres of Bread and Puppet show that happen. They usually happen outside with, with a big circus curtain and a ring. Um, but there are other kinds of Bread and Puppet shows as well that happen indoors, that are shorter form usually, and, and don't have this kind of sequence of acts. Um, we are doing two different shows in New York City, one of which is this circus, the Apocalypse Defiance Circus, the other of which is an adaptation of Hamlet uh, called Ophelia. Um, you know, so that is obviously, instead of reinterpreting uh, a circus, is reinterpreting this, you know, old play and like this, you know, this great story and this great poetry. So is Bread and Puppet usually reinterpreting a known concept? Is that part of the model? I mean, we do also do brand new shows, but I would mm -hmm. say all Bread and Puppet shows, there is at least a nod to 
you know, ancient rituals and some of the biggest stories and biggest themes. Um, I think that's one of the things that's like really special about Bread and Puppet that it it, it is operating on this universal level to get at uh, very specific political issues of this moment. This show and most of your work is often a critique or commentary on our political system and economic system. How has that resonated with audiences? Are you ever met with opposition? Although we are often critiquing um, the brutalities of the system, the world that we live in, we try never to be mean-spirited about it. And we're never targeting, um, you know, we're never trying to like mock individuals. A lot of times we're mocking systems and actions within systems and trying to appeal to the audience to see the humanity and the human consequences of some of these brutal de decisions that are being made. Uh, so, for example, the, the company was founded uh, being anti-war and doing protests to the Vietnam War. But we would, for example, never mock the troops or uh, the, the myriad people who are caught up in the decisions of war and the war machine. So you reference the Vietnam War. Bread and Puppet has been around for 50 years. How has it changed in that time? Uh, I mean, I think it's inevitable that, you know, everything changes all the time. But one of the things I really admire about Bread and Puppet is that it is so uncompromising with its core values. Uh, Bread and Puppet doesn't accept grant money. And Bread and Puppet uh, never turns audiences away for lack of funds. And it's one of the oldest self-sustaining companies uh, despite, you know, economic crises that have happened in the last 60 years, uh, it's still, uh, you know, crying for a better world and trying to live out its politics in a way that I find very inspiring. But, you know, I'm sure there have been myriad changes that perhaps older puppeteers might be able to speak yeah. to. And you do have a diversity of ages in the troupe. What is it like touring with 25 people? It it can be, you know, wacky and chaotic, but it is always fun and always a joy. Um, I think one of the important things to know about the company is that everyone is doing everything. You know, at, no one has just one job. No one is just a performer. So everyone is, you know, a performer and a bread baker and is driving a vehicle and is repairing puppets and doing, you know, myriad other things. And booking the tour and while the, the tour, tour is happening. <laughs> so so that means that it it is very busy. You know, we're going all the time and, you know, trying to to eke out and cobble together our existence as we go. But but it's always fun. We get to see amazing places being hosted by wonderful people in each event, in each place that we go to. Well, we are really looking forward to seeing the performance next week. Bread and Puppet will be performing at 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday, October 18th, outside on the Center for the Arts lawn. For KHOL Jackson, I'm Emily Cohen. A new report showed Wyoming is home to the largest sagebrush habitat in the West and urged officials to continue to protect those lands. Grand Teton National Park is doing just that with ongoing sagebrush restoration projects. I went to one of those restoration sites to learn more.
It's a sunny and windy fall day in Grand Teton National Park, and the mountains loom over a plot of flat valley land in the park's southern section. The 95-acre site, known as Antelope Flats, is a bottleneck for mule deer, elk, and pronghorn, which all funnel through during their regular migrations. But right now, the land is empty. No animals, no plants, just dirt. Soon the land could be filled with native sagebrush. We see some kind of heavy equipment. We use tractors for tilling. Behind me is the seed drill that will be used to seed much of the area. That's ecologist Laura Jones, who's leading the National Park's sagebrush restoration project in Antelope Flats. The land was originally covered in sagebrush, but homesteaders removed the native plants in the late 1800s and planted non-native pasture grasses in their place to create hay fields for their cattle to graze in. Park staff took those grasses out last year as part of a project to restore sagebrush to 4,500 acres of valley land. Since 2007, the park has either restored or is in the process of restoring nearly 1,400 acres. That includes the Antelope Flats area. Even though the homesteaders are long gone, their lasting impact on the environment remains with non-native grasses. For species here in the park, where we are supporting a diversity of native flora and fauna, uh, this, this almost monoculture doesn't provide the same ecosystem processes and services to the wildlife. Now, with the grasses finally gone, park staff is tilling the land to change the soil properties before planting the sagebrush seeds later this fall. The plants could take over 20 years to fill in, and Grand Teton will be tracking progress with researchers at the University of Wyoming. The seeds were all hand-collected from other areas of the National Park, a strategy that gives the plants the best chance of being fit for the environment. And these seeds aren't only sagebrush. It's also other shrubs like bitterbrush and rabbitbrush and a diversity of grasses and wildflowers. And that diversity of of life, of plants, supports wildlife throughout the whole year. A healthy sagebrush habitat could ease migration for the many animals that flow through the valley. A plant commonly paired with sagebrush, bitterbrush, is an important food source for moose. Even grizzlies rely on sagebrush, digging up the plants and eating their roots. They're also food for smaller mammals, and then you'll see like foxes out in the in the winter jumping for those those small mammals under the snow is pretty cool for decades the fight to protect sagebrush habitats has centered on conservation for one species sage grouse the birds rely on sagebrush for food and protective cover throughout the year but now experts across the nation are taking a broader approach on september 22nd a team of scientists from a dozen organizations published a report mapping out the many threats to the sagebrush ecosystem, like invasive grasses and wildfires. It shows that the West is losing over 1 million acres of sagebrush a year. The authors are urging government agencies and conservationists to focus on defending areas with sagebrush that's already thriving. You're getting the best bang for your buck. That's Zach Wurzebach, one of the authors of the report and a program director at the Center for Large Landscape Conservation in Bozeman. It just makes more sense to work outwards where it's gonna, you're going to have an easier time restoring um, and addressing stressors such as conifer encroachment or invasive annual grasses uh, than go to those places that have just they're just overrun with them. Unlike some of these places, sagebrush in Wyoming doesn't need as much work. 
The report showed that the state has the largest intact sagebrush ecosystem in the West. This is likely because the state's soil and climate make it resistant to invasive annual grasses and wildfires. The Great Basin, which includes much of Nevada and Utah and parts of California and Oregon, has been hit by megafires that take out native sagebrush and give way to invasive grasses. But Wyoming has been a bit more lucky. Still, Wurzelbach says this means conservation and restoration work is all the more important. And while the picture in Wyoming is very good, you know, Wyoming is a stronghold for sagebrush habitat. You know, the data shows there are some kind of big problem areas, particularly in drier areas like the Bighorn Basin. I think a key message, you know, moving forward for all this is that it's good, but there's still going to be a lot of work to, that needs to be done to keep it good. Back in the Grand Teton National Park, staff and volunteers are doing just that. They're investing in areas where work is needed and protecting the sites that are already thriving. This includes the expansive sagebrush flats that stretch out on either sides of Teton Park Road and Highway 89. Laura Jones investigates one of those sites off the highway. We're looking at a healthy intact sagebrush ecosystem, you know, like a third cover of sagebrush. And we also have a lot of grasses, native grass species. Jones hopes that one day the antelope flat site will look like this one. Of course, that won't be for decades, but what puts down roots now will benefit Grand Teton for years to come. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Coming up next, an interview with Jason McLennan, who was the keynote speaker at Jackson Hole Public Arts Moonshot 5x5 event on October 3rd. McLennan is considered one of the world's most influential individuals in the fields of architecture and green building today. He leads an architecture and planning firm and is the founder of the International Living Future Institute, whose mission is to promote a society that is socially just, culturally rich, and ecologically restorative. He joined music director Jack Catlin in advance of the event here in the KHOL studios. I am super excited to introduce Jason McLennan, who joins us now in the KHOL studios. Welcome in. Hey, good to be here. Great to have you. So, Jason, you are considered a pioneer that really shook up and raised the bar in how a green building can be built and operated. For those unfamiliar, what exactly is a green building and how does it contribute to an improved environmental landscape. Well, happy to uh, dive in on that. I've been uh, doing this, as you mentioned, for a while. <laughs> uh, just means I'm old. Um, but um, essentially, green building is an approach to design and construction where we're trying to minimize or eliminate impact to the planet while making buildings healthier for people and all of life. Um, so it's a philosophical approach to how we design everything. 
So what initially got you interested in sustainability and how did it shape your career from that point on? I've been involved in this uh, movement from the very beginning. I uh, grew up in a mining town in northern Canada that was heavily impacted by mining. Um, I saw firsthand the impact on the planet that we can have when we don't think about how we get things from the earth. And I basically, from that point on, dedicated my life to trying to understand how we can do better with the design of our cities and towns, our buildings, our homes. And uh, I've been on a bit of a personal journey for, for many years now. So it started when you were young. <clears throat> started when I was young. I fell yeah. in love with nature. Um, mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time outdoors. I think people here can relate to that. You know, it's upsetting when development happens that that harms these places we love. And uh, I saw firsthand, as so many people do, you know, people developing things without thought, without consideration. And there's better ways. And that's what we're all about: is showing people that there's a better way of doing things. So you are the founder and creator of the Living Building Challenge, widely considered the world's most progressive and stringent green building program. Can you walk us through the living building <clears throat> philosophy, how you came up with the challenge and how it all works? Absolutely. And it really is a philosophy. Ultimately, we take inspiration from nature itself. I want people to think about a tree or, you know, a plant in their yard, which is really nature's architecture. Like a building, uh, nature's architecture, a tree is rooted to place. It has a foundation, has roots, goes into the ground and holds it firm, has structure. It's actually habitat for other species, just like our buildings are habitat for us. And it generates energy from the sun and um, has to be evolved very specifically to the place that it's at. It builds soil, creates fresh air. And um, again, is creating habitat for insects and microorganisms and so many other things. Now, imagine if our buildings could do all those things as well. Imagine if our buildings were not just places that housed us, but had this sort of negative environmental legacy behind them, but in fact did everything that a tree can do. And in essence, that's what a living building is trying to do. It's trying to get all of its energy from the sun. It's trying to live within the water balance of the place that it's in. It is non-toxic and uh, infinitely recyclable. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's a tall order. But we do have living building projects now around the world. And uh, we're showing that these ideas are not just theory, but very possible. Well, thank you so much, Jason McLennan, for joining us here at KHOL. Really appreciate it. This coverage is funded in part with an Art for All grant provided by the town of Jackson and Teton County. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Colorado local and world-renowned mountaineer Hillary Nelson passed away in an avalanche while on an expedition in Nepal. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KOTO's Julia Caulfield shares this tribute to Nelson's life. When you think of giants in the world of mountaineering and adventure, one name inevitably rises to the top. Hillary Nelson was the best of her time. We love uh, Hillary for her energy and her motivation. And it was always um, equal to men in, in the mountains and incredibly strong in that sense. That's Conrad Anker, a friend of Nelson and fellow mountaineer. 
Together, they climbed Denali and Everest and took an expedition to Antarctica. But Anchor notes it wasn't Nelson's ability to climb or ski the most impressive peaks that sticks out. As a professional, she was always an advocate for women. To, and when she elevated women, she elevated all of us. Nelson passed away on September 26th after getting caught in an avalanche on Mount Mansalu in Nepal. She was 49 years old. Nelson grew up in Seattle, Washington, where she spent her winter skiing Stevens Pass in the Cascades. After graduating from college, she went to Chamonix, France for a winter, which turned into five years, and Nelson began her journey as a world-renowned ski mountaineer. In a career that spanned decades, Nelson became the first descent on dozens of mountains, on more than 40 expeditions in 16 countries. She was the first person to complete a ski descent of Lhotse, the first woman to link Everest and Lhotse in a 24-hour push. She completed a double summit of Denali and was the first person to ski descent Papsura Peak. She was named National Geographic Adventurer of the Year and a North Face athlete, captain of the North Face team. But even with all her accomplishments, speak to those who knew Nelson, and it's her heart that leaves the greatest impact. Anka remembers their expedition on Denali. She was uh, um, with a, a group of younger skiers and snowboarders, and she was great. She was like the, uh, the den mother. She was there making sure that we were fed and that the youngsters were doing their bit and tidying up, and so it was a a cross uh, between a, a wonderful parent and an expedition leader. Suzanne Barraza got to know Nelson through her work with the Mountain Film Festival. She remembers being a little intimidated to start. I've always looked up to Hillary and admired her and thought, you know, she is just the coolest woman ever. And then getting to know her, it was just this other side of her like she wasn't intimidating at all, you know, cuz all of her accomplishments, I just thought, wow, she's just kind of untouchable woman, but she was so much the opposite. She was caring and giving and generous with her time and just had the most beautiful, easy laugh and just just a hell of a fun person. Barraza adds that while the world knew Nelson as a trailblazer in mountaineering, she was so much more than that. She just was an incredible community member for Telluride. Um, incredibly generous with her time, being an amazing mother, an amazing, an incredible partner. She was a just a warm, loving, kind person. And her being a mountaineer was just just a small part of who she really was. Still, it's hard to understate Nelson's importance on the world of mountaineering, especially for women. Here's anchor then Barraza. Hillary's legacy will rest upon empowering women to pursue the mountain dreams and that whether it's uh, working as a ski guide with a helicopter outfit as she did with Helitracks or uh, being the team captain at the North Face or climbing Everest in let's say in a day, her, um, her ability and motivation has touched many people and specifically um, really encouraged women to pursue their dreams and know they had the skills and ability to go do it. She was a complete um, role model for women and showing that you can 
do have these accomplishments and these um, goals, achieve your goals and still be a mother. And often women are held at a different standard for that than men where men can go off and do all these things and have children. Women are kind of judged to say, oh, no, you, you can't do that. You're, you're a woman. And she really broke that wide open and just showed that it is important for women to have dreams and to, and to follow those dreams. Nelson is survived by her two children, Graydon and Quinn, and her love, Jim. That story from KOTO was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KHOL. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.